So that was kind of my first really cool experience that, and then I was like, Hey, I want to play this sport and I want to play it for a long time. We're going to go out on the field. We're going to score as many goals as we can. We're going to have fun. Oh, Becchio, well placed. When a sport is in its early stages of gaining national or worldwide popularity, it can lack a lot of key things. Infrastructure, publicity, all the things that come with media and attention, and opportunity, established leagues, for example. A lot of the elements we're used to seeing boasted by major sports today just aren't quite there. In the midst of this building stage, critical to this building stage, walks the trailblazer. Incredibly talented in the sport, harbors the kind of skill that is going to set the bar for talent from here on out. And the trailblazer, in this rich but still very untended soil, doesn't have a lot of things we're used to seeing talented athletes like themselves have. They don't have all the media write-ups and cameras in their faces. They don't have a blueprint unfolded before them that lays out the potential paths they might take towards success in the sport. In their every days, there isn't the exaggerated noise of people reacting and responding to their trailblazing. I've put on my hat, my podcast armchair sociologist hat, coming up with some theories, creating some categories in both annoying and maybe helpful ways. Just going to riff about different kinds of trailblazers in sport. Um, So I've been thinking about, I don't know, Danica Patrick came to mind as one example of a type of trailblazer. If you don't know who Danica Patrick is, hit pause, go give her Wikipedia page a quick glance. Um, So when she was breaking glass ceilings and being a legend, people had a lot to say about that. Um, They had a lot of feelings on the matter. Social media definitely was a relevant component in her trailblazing. There was a lot of, again, I use the word noise. There was a lot of attention. Um, There was a lot of talk. And I guess a different type, but a lot of similarities to this Danica Patrick example. U.S. women's national soccer team this past summer in France during the World Cup. They generated a lot of attention. People were talking, reacting, and responding to the incredible path clearing that they were doing. But I guess the different or the added part of this kind of trailblazing is it was very clear, it was very in your face. The larger community that they were inspiring, that they were influencing and impacting in the immediate days, weeks, 
months after there were all these other outcomes of their history making and just their general dominance and being so cool. Women's soccer in the U.S. experienced growth in a lot of ways. There was an uptick in viewership for the NWSL, the highest level of women's soccer in North America. A major sponsor in Budweiser got on board. As of next year, the women who ply their trade in the NWSL will all be getting paid more. Those are the sorts of results of that kind of trailblazing, those women doing what no other women had done before. And I say all of this, as Hannah does every week to build up the context, that what I'm, the story that we're digging into for this week's episode is, doesn't fall into either of those categories. No. For this kind of trailblazer, there's a lot of grinding away in the dark to play in places without any pomp and circumstance in the now or in the after. At the core for this athlete and the sport they play, there is an uncertainty as to what the future could hold. There are a ton of unknowns. A lot of that is scary, it's discouraging, but there's also something just wildly beautiful about it. You have this trailblazer person with this amazing talent and with this love planted in them, and it's all growing and developing and they don't have a map. So that love and the desire to get better, that's what guides them. It's a pure thing. It's not influenced by the opinions of, you should play at these few colleges and then go here, or you should skip college altogether, whatever the the message might be. And that love, competitiveness, and desire to just have these emotions towards your sport guide you and the Wild West figuring it out landscape, it can lead the trailblazer far from their comfort zone, very alone, to not always rainbow and butterflies kind of places. And it can also lead them to being involved in this sport, loving it, playing and otherwise, far longer than they could have ever imagined. The trailblazer will retire, as all athletes do, In their departure, they leave a lot behind in what they give to their sport, that, that gift that keeps on giving. And that's a role model, a reference point for coaches, an inspiring story, a potential course for others to follow. Listener, meet our trailblazer, Paula Weishoff. Paula Weishoff is one of the game's greats. She played in three Olympics with the U.S., medaling at the 1984 and 1992 Games. She stands as the only American volleyball player to have played in Olympic Games 12 years apart. She also participated in the 1996 Atlanta Games to uh, help you guys out with that math. Weishoff was inducted into the U.S. Volleyball Hall of Fame and the International Volleyball Hall of Fame. There's really no, there's no other way to start this story than by going right in to one of the most important questions. I I might be totally off here, but I do think this might be relevant in thinking about your retirement. As a 6'1 woman walking about this world, 
How often do you get asked what sport you played? <laughs> I think you get it quite a bit. <laughs> and um, it's kind of funny because I, you know, I used to joke and um, I would say gymnastics. And they kind of look at you with that face <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, it's funny because I'm very, also very muscular. So some people will be like, are you a bodybuilder? And it used to, like, bother me. <laughs> like, no, I'm a volleyball player. So it was kind of funny. But most of it now, I mean, back in the day, it was, do you play basketball? I think now you get, oh, you, you have the body type of a volleyball player. So I'll get that quite a bit. Um, so now I think people are just more educated. And there's a lot more volleyball players and teams. And they kind of see the physique between basketball and volleyball. So I think there's a little bit of a distinction there. And now that I have the answer to that question, which means I can sleep peacefully tonight, we can officially get things started here. Let's begin with when Weishoff first got involved in the sport. It's kind of interesting. Kids start so early now. And I really didn't start playing volleyball until like the eighth grade when it was like on the cement outside. <laughs> so I really didn't play seriously. So probably my sophomore year in high school. So my freshman year, I made the JV team, but um, they only kept me because I was tall. I wasn't very good at that point. So my freshman year in high school, I also did soccer, softball, track, um, and then volleyball. So I was still playing multiple sports at the time. Um, I did my first like I tried out for um, the junior team and that was my first experience where I fell more in love with volleyball, I guess. And I got to go to Colorado Springs. I think that was the summer of 1978. So to date myself, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of my first really cool experience that, and then I was like, hey, I want to play this sport and I want to play it for a long time. Once she was identified within the national team setup in Colorado Springs, Things really took off from there. Weishoff dropped her other sports, started taking volleyball more seriously, started to see it as something that could take her places and as a significant part of her future. And the result of that? Volleyball did define me back then because I went from, you know, I went straight to college for just a season. Weishoff went to USC and she played for a good time, not a long time. In 1980, she helped lead the Trojans to a national championship and picked up all-conference and all-America honors on their way to the title. And I went straight to the national team, and that's what I did 24-7 every day for all the, I guess that would be four years, three years up until the 1984 Olympics. So, At the 1984 Olympics, Weishoff was the youngest member on the U.S., the team went on to win the silver medal at the games in LA and she was named team MVP. It did define me. I think now I think the athletes have a better quality of life in the sense that maybe they practice in the morning and they have, you know, families now. And um, yes, they still travel, um, you know, but straight after I went overseas. Pretty much right after the 1984 games, she leaves to go on this epic journey playing abroad for over a decade, in Europe, in South America, in Asia. 
Globetrotting for the love of volleyball would go on to become routine for the star. But at first, there was a lot that was uncomfortable about it. Born and raised in SoCal and supported, drilled, scheduled in the way elite athletes are, time overseas as a young adult was a wake-up call and important for her growth as a volleyball player and a human. And, you know, this was before cell phones. And so, yeah, it did, it did actually define me. And I remember my first year when I was in Italy and um, I said to my roommate, who was my best friend, and I was just like, can you go with me to the store and tell me it's okay to buy this? Because all the decisions in my life had been made, what time we practice, what food, our meals were made for us, everything, how we did our hair, how we, you know, tucked our uniforms in, everything was decided for us. It was kind of a eye-opening experience my first year when I was in overseas. And I think that's where I had a real life experience where I learned a lot more about myself away from volleyball. So that was kind of my year. And then I stayed overseas. Um, I think I played for 11 season overseas. And that's, that's the time where I really grew um, just knowing myself and knowing what I liked and what I disliked and, you know, how I wanted to make my decisions because before that, most of my decisions were made for me. She has this really incredible career playing in leagues across the world, Italy for nine seasons, Brazil for one, Japan for one. Weisshoff wasn't the only one doing this at the time, but it's a small group of women who are dedicating their lives to the sport, separating themselves from their loved ones in this kind of athlete nomad way. It's amazing. I don't know a ton about volleyball, but taking a step back, just looking at this situation, if we're thinking about, one, it's a woman's sport, and heavens knows all the hoops the average female pro athlete has to jump through to do what they love. And two, this isn't like a major international sport at this point if we're looking at the grand scheme of things. Volleyball had become an Olympic sport just like 20 years prior to her odyssey. It's not to say it's not played around the world or it's not popular in different places, but once a sport becomes an Olympic sport, there's a lot of infrastructure and attention and just like development direction that goes into that. Weishoff is living in these cool places and she's doing what she loves, but I'm not trying to romanticize that. There's no doubt life was tough at times, definitely in the non-Olympic years. It's just like, wow, she's such a badass for, for doing that and doing it for as long as she did. She led that life up until the very end of her athletic career. So getting to the end, do, do you remember your last volleyball game? I want to say that's a that's a really good question. You ask questions that nobody's asked me before. I like that. Um, my last volleyball match was in the 96 Olympics, I would have to say. And I think that was tough because we didn't do as well as we expected to do. That is incorrect, actually. I went back overseas after that. So I did play one season in Japan after that. So my last volleyball match was actually played outside of the U.S. <laughs> did you know that your last was your last? 
Yes, I had been planning on um, being done at the end of that season. I had retired, so I did retire after '96, and then Ari Selinger, my old my old volleyball coach, that sounds bad. Um, my coach <laughs> from the 1984 Olympics asked me to go back and play in Japan one more season. And I always joked about him and I was kind of like, oh, so I get to be the older player. Do I have to do all the practices? Cause I don't know if I'll make it. So that was really funny. Um, but yeah, my, my last match was in Japan actually. Her last volleyball match was probably as far away from where it all started as possible. There was a piece to that end coming off of a disappointing 96 Olympics. That was her last international tournament. I think for for me, the, the 96 Olympics was tough just because um, I went back in a different role. I'd been a starter in 84 and um, 92, and I went back knowing that my role was as a sub. So that was kind of a little bit different. And then we didn't perform as well as we wanted to, right? So we didn't make the top eight. Um, sorry, the top four. And then we we're playing for fifth through eight and we lost that fifth game match. So then we went to the bottom and we were playing for seventh and eighth and finally had a chance to play in that match. So yeah, you win that last match at the Olympics, but it was, it was tough as that wasn't the result that we wanted. Um, mm-hmm. So having another chance to go and play um, was pretty special. So at least, you know, we won the the um, there's a tournament in Japan after this season and we ended up winning that so it's nice way to kind of end your career tie it up ended it on a win she ended it with a coach she respected and who had always been by her side she ended it still having a supreme love for the sport which begged the question was it hard for you to walk away as a player I I know (laughs) Um, if I didn't have a bad shoulder, I didn't have, you know, my knee was, you know, I didn't have any meniscus left. So it was pretty painful. I would still play because I love it. I would still play to this day. So there's times when now I'll kind of do a little bit in practice and then I'll pay for it the next day because <laughs> my knee will swell and stuff. But um, I think it was tough. I mean, it's tough. It's the end of something that has been a part of your life. And, and like you said, to find who I was for a long time. Yeah, okay, of course it was hard, but the fact that she finished in a good mental place with the sport, still harbored that love, had taken on this mentoring authority role in the twilight of her career, all that saw her almost fall into a natural next step. I didn't really know that coaching was a path that I wanted. I was still in player mode, so I was playing as long as I could. Um, I was very lucky in the sense that Lisa Love. Lisa Love is one of the best volleyball coaches our country has seen. She enjoyed a very successful stint at USC. Got in touch with me, and then she brought me into coaching, and she brought me back to USC, and I was able to finish my degree and then get into another profession. So I was I was very lucky, maybe the right time at the right place with just, and she's been um, my first volleyball mentor, and she's just been, a lifelong friend and mentor. So a pretty mm-hmm. special person. And after that first year, I just fell in love with it. So I was lucky again. I was in a good spot at, you know, at the right time. In terms of something she missed the most when she first stepped away from the game as a player. Well, I think a lot of us can relate. I think the biggest part 
missing part, which is competing. I'm hugely competitive person and just getting out there and competing every day. You miss that a little bit as a coach. It's different. Like you can, you know, put it in play for the players, but you can't get out there and play for them. Right. So that was the hard part. So, I mean, even to this day, when I play cards, I hate losing. So (laughs) I'm still pretty competitive. Which would end up coming in handy. The next chapter, the coaching chapter, really took hold of her time and energy in a way she might not have expected. I go, oh, I get to have a break and I get to rest and I get to, you know, maybe relax a little bit. And then at the end, you start a job and you're working just as hard. This might be applicable to quite a few careers, but I do think that there's something special about coaching and how it just plays right into a competitive person's needs. Obviously, winning is a big part of sports, but like there's this hierarchy of pushing your career. There's all these little hierarchies, and you can see how being a coach is satisfying and fulfilling, but also you don't ever really get complacent. There's always something for you to be striving towards. Getting into coaching, I just start at the bottom and move all the way back up. So I started as the grad assistant and then second assistant, then first assistant, then associate head coach. Then I got my own program. So it was like I was starting at zero. When you're a coach, there's always a way for that competitive muscle to be flexed. And that feels pretty unique to this career. But there's something even more unique about a few of Weishoff's experiences in particular. Um, So you mentioned USC, and it's it's so interesting. You played at USC and won a national championship. You were an assistant coach there, won two national championships, played for the U.S. at the Olympics. Later on, you were a coach for the team, Team USA Mm -hmm. at the Olympics. What's it like being on these two different sides of the same experience? I think as a player, you have maybe a little more free time. I want to say, I mean, I knew that our coaches like Terry Laskevich and Ari Salinger, they spent hours and hours watching video and scouting, you know, doing reports. Um, As a player, you take a nap, you go in, you're kind of doing, you know, you're like the workhorse, right? So, you, you know, you get out there and the nice thing is you're getting exercise, you know, you're, you're being able to just sweat a little bit. And then as a coach, um, you know, you're, up early, you're putting together scouting reports, you're doing practice, you're watching video. And it was just a whole different perspective on a sport you love and just kind of missing the physical element. So I remember at at one point, Jamie Morrison and myself were like, hey, Hugh, we got to get out. We got to go get at least an hour of, you know, some type of bike exercise, you know, (laughs) so we're not crazy. Um, even though you're in practice, you're just standing, so you're not really doing much. So, and the difference is, I think, um, yeah, as a player, you're physically, you know, more engaged physically, mentally, but I feel like you have periods of time where you have some rest. And then I think as coaches, you know, we grinded a lot. We, we were working hard and I still do. We still do that. <laughs> yeah. It's really seems like because coaches wear so many hats, it's like, okay, well, if you're not planning practice, then you should be recruiting or I don't know. It just feels like there's, there's no like stopping because there's always something else. <laughs> I know. And then you get a meeting or you get a phone call or your player comes in and you have, you know, so your day is pretty full. Her days are filled with about three dozen things to do to make a program the best it can be. But you can be sure Weishoff wouldn't want it any other way. 
Right now, she's currently the head women's volleyball coach at Concordia University, a D2 school in Southern California. It's right where she feels she should be, doing the most with her expertise and her love for the sport. I think with coaching, it's, you know, when the light bulb goes off or when a player gets it or you just make an impact in a life that you never thought you were going to have, maybe on a personal note. Um, there's quite a few players that I still have in my life, um, you know, and you're watching them, you're going to their weddings, you know, they're having kids, you're a part of their, you're part of their life. And I think that's, um, you know, memorable to me. It's not always what you say. It's kind of how you make players feel. And, you know, of course we we're not a hundred percent, you know, with every player, but there are those that, you know, that are still in your life and you've made a huge impact and, you know, it's pretty rewarding. Doesn't really seem, well, as of when I talked to her, things could have changed in the past couple weeks. It doesn't seem like her coaching days are numbered. Her positive feelings towards the game, the desire to be involved, it's all still there, even if it needs some dusting off at times. Still enjoy it. It's, I mean, obviously it's like you just, you grind, you grind, you grind. And then I just was, uh, I did another um, three weeks with the, the U.S. junior team, but then I had a nice vacation. So as long as I think you you can recharge and I have those moments where I can, you know, get away and have some family time and, and spend some time with my friends, I think I could do this for a long time. As an athlete who played at two Olympics 12 years apart, as the, as as she put it, designated old player on her club team, and as a college coach who has seen many seniors come and go, Weishoff knows more than a little bit about the discomfort and the aliveness that comes with saying goodbye to something you love. No, it, go, it comes a lot faster than you think it was. All of a sudden, you know, our seniors are saying that same thing. We have two seniors now. Go, oh my gosh, we're already seniors. And, you know, don't panic, you know, always just, and it's something I didn't always do. So my advice is, hey, smell the roses along the way, take time for friends and family. Things will fall in place, you know, as long one of my favorites quotes is the way you do anything is the way you do everything. If you put your heart and passion into it, you're going to find where you belong. There's less continent hopping now in Weishoff's life. Looking back at the 80s, her hairstyle is very different. Her menisci durability and shoulder health (laughs) has changed in terms of her identity as someone who loves this sport who craves being involved in it pushing the bar someone who's a guide and inspiring presence to others that has stuck firm that's always been her blueprint that's always been the essential wiring in her internal compass and that compass has done a pretty good job of getting her to land at the spot right where she needs to be Thank you to Paula Weishoff for coming onto the podcast, and thank you for listening. I hope to see you next time.